Tonight, the Apostle Paul takes a turn that many people would like to not talk about. If you haven't read ahead, you're going to wonder what that is. A lot of people get nervous when we talk about this. Generous giving to others. <laughs> Anybody feel like you need to get coffee and not come back? It happens. Learning how to give and tithe was a giant breakthrough for me. I'm going to give you a little testimony, uh, just personally, uh, as we start. Th this topic tonight has a lot of meaning to me. Um, it was a lot of years ago that my wife and I were put in a situation where we had to decide whether or not we believed God. Um, way before I became a preacher, way before I was in any kind of uh, speaking position. And um, God was working on our hearts, and we came to this conclusion that if we believe that He is who He says He is, we have to trust Him with our money. We have to learn how to give. And it is learned how to give. It's a, it's a way of thinking. Um, and, and we came to this simple conclusion. This would be a good foundation night. There is no way I can sit here and say to God, I have given you all of my heart. I have given you my life when I am unable to give him my first fruits. It doesn't make sense. If I'm unwilling to obey him in his call to tithe, to give 10%, to learn how to be a giver, how in the world am I ever going to be able to say to him, but I gave you my life? I gave you my life, but I can't give you my checkbook. My life's bigger than my checkbook. Trust me, my checkbook's not that big. So <coughs> this was a breakthrough moment for me. When I got past that, in other words, when I say I got past it, when that just became a normal way of life, that when I got paid, and by the way, I'm talking about 30 years ago. When I got paid, the first thing I would do is I would set aside what's his. Let's set it aside. It's not my money. And when that became a part of my life, then, then that's just, it's kind of like withholdings at the government. You know, I just don't acknowledge that that's mine anymore, that that's designated you know it's his i'm not arguing with him about it i don't have to contemplate it i just up front say it's his it's not mine you know the first fruits of my harvest it's actually all his so that was the defining moment in my life i'm gonna tell you it's a defining moment so with that said now i can continue what happened to me after that was interesting <clears throat> Then I got into the ministry years later, and my wife and I continued to tithe, and we, we, we've always tried to be more than tithing givers. But I became reluctant to talk about giving over the years because when I got into a speaking ministry, because I was reluctant, because I thought people were, would, would look at me and say, well, you're, you're like those preachers, you're just after the money. So I caught myself being reluctant to bring it up. If you've come to church here for 17 years, you, you have, you've heard very few sermons or 
messages about money because I just didn't hardly talk about it very much. God seemed to always provide. I, didn't, I did a few series in the last few years, but it wasn't something I talked about a lot. But I've since come to a conclusion. Took me a lot of years to figure this out. That leaving out giving is leaving out the blessing. And I was wrong. In fact, let me tell you, I think it was about three years ago that I had, an, I had a, a face-to-face with God to which I apologized to Him. I apologized to God about my reluctance to talk about giving. That I, again, wasn't trusting Him. Because for me not to talk to you about giving is like leaving out this chapter in 2 Corinthians. It's like leaving out the Word. And tonight, if you don't understand what I'm saying now, you will by the time you leave. In other words, I'm getting better at talking about this to which some of you are going to say, oh no. So here we go. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in His kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles and they are very poor. But they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed into rich generosity. Now, remember, the church is the body of Christ. The body of Christ, and when a part of the body is in need, the other parts of the body cannot ignore that need. They must attempt to satisfy that need in my physical body if there is something in my physical body that has a need the other parts of my body will go to its rescue other portions of my body will go to heal red blood cells white blood cells god designed the body to take care and accommodate each other parts of the body we are the body of christ which means brothers and sisters in need need to be taken care of. Those needs need to be met by the remaining parts of the body that are healthy. This is not some weird metaphor. It's, it's how he designed the human body. It's how he designed the church. And what you're about to see is it's going to be in action in the church at Macedonia and in the church at Corinth. Paul is bragging about the Macedonian church. This letter's to who? It's not to the Macedonians. It's to the church at Corinth. He's bragging about the church in Macedonia in order to motivate the Corinth church to go after the blessing of giving. You see, Paul knows what it took me too long to figure out, that there's a blessing offered to anybody who comes to the relationship of Christ to where giving is no longer reluctant, but a joy. When you can cross that line, listen, when you're able, spiritually speaking, mature, spiritual speaking enough to cross over that line, once you cross that line, getting over that line sometimes hard. But once you're able to cross that line, you understand that there's a blessing associated with being a giver. Notice that Paul says that the Macedonian church is tested by trouble and they are very poor. Now, would that be the first group of people that you would expect to be marvelous givers? 
What's their condition? They are tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. Yet he still brags to the Corinth church about the Macedonian church giving techniques. Have you ever taken the time to notice the concept of a tithe is percentage-based? Because I have. You know, God is God. And I suppose if he were to come up with a concept of giving, he could do whatever he wanted to. But he did it with a percentage. 10%. It's his number. And by the way, the whole concept of a tithe goes way back, way back outside the New Testament, way back past the time of Moses. Do you know when the tithe appears? Abraham and Melchizedek. That's when it appears. Abraham gives a tenth to Melchizedek. This tithe thing's not new. And what was the it was part of the blessing. The tithe was always connected to the blessing. It's percentage-based. So it doesn't matter how rich or how poor you are, it, the giving is equal, right? If you don't have much, guess what? You don't have to give much. If you've got a lot, you got a lot more to give. But it is based upon how much you have. The question isn't the size of the gift. The question is about accepting your share in the responsibility of giving to the body, which will open up your share of the blessing. Now listen carefully. Once you're able to get to the point where giving becomes a natural part of your life, you're sharing with the body of Christ. Once you get to that point, not only are you able to share in the needs of others, that opens a door. Listen, it opens a door for you to share in the blessing. And until you're willing to share in the giving, you're, you're, the door closes for your ability to share in the blessing. In other words, listen, listen you're opening the door to your own blessing. Now, some of you right now, you, you, you don't really acknowledge that. You hear, you hear me, but you really don't accept that is true. I'm going to prove it to you tonight by the Word of God. Now, do you think God's a good father or a bad father? Do you think that when He, when he gives us these directives... He's doing it for your good or for your harm? Verse 3. For I can testify that they gave, the Macedonian church, they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in this gift. Now, now, some of you may be confused right now, so let me give you some context. All of this story in chapter 8 is about the church in Jerusalem is suffering. The church in Jerusalem has gone through terrible times. There's economic trouble in Jerusalem. The church is being persecuted in Jerusalem. People are dying for their faith to be a Jesus follower in Jerusalem. It's a bad place to be a Christian is in Jerusalem. There's also a, a drought that has affected the region in this particular time. 
So there's financial distress of the Christians in Jerusalem. Well, here we are over in Macedonia, and here we are over in Corinth, and they're not experiencing that same trouble, but their brothers and their sisters are experiencing that trouble. So is there a responsibility in the church when you're healthy and another part of the body is not healthy for the healthy part to administer to the unhealthy part? Yes. Now, the focus tonight in this chapter is Paul was collecting money from the churches outside of Jerusalem to take the money to Jerusalem to distribute to the Christians in Jerusalem. Okay, now now you know what they're doing. Now I can go back and let me read verse 3 again. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for this privilege, for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than we had hoped for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us just as God wanted them to do. Have you ever begged for the opportunity to give? (laughs) It says that they begged, the church in Macedonia begged us for the opportunity to be able to put money in the pot that's going to Jerusalem. Have you ever considered giving a privilege instead of an obligation? When the plate goes around on Sunday, do, how, how do you look at the plate? Do, do you look at it as a privilege or do you look at it as an obligation? Which one? I, I'm going to tell you, it says a whole lot about who you, how you see God. It, 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 it's, it, it, it's how you see God. It's how you view God. How you answer that question. Who were the Macedonian and the Corinth church giving money to? Or they were, they were giving money to the poor in Jerusalem. Notice that they gave themselves. Anybody notice that as I was reading? What's the first thing they did before they became good givers? They gave themselves to the Lord. And they gave themselves to the apostles. And then they gave themselves their, their financial support to Jerusalem. Don't miss those last few words, just as God wanted them to. In other words, who's leading them to do it? You might say, well, Paul was, but who's leading them to do it? The Holy Spirit. This is where I want to stop and bring up a life-changing statement of Jesus. This is something I wish I'd learned much earlier in life. It's not recorded in any of the four Gospels. It's not in Matthew, it's not in Mark, it's not in Luke, and it's not in John. It must have been a word from Jesus directly to Paul as he encountered him. It's found in the book of Acts, so I'm going to pause in 2 Corinthians. Why? Because I want to show you, I said earlier, I'm going to prove to you tonight something. I'm not going to prove it, I'm going to let the Word of God prove it. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul says this, I have never coveted anyone's silver or gold or fine clothes. You know that these hands of mine have worked to supply my own needs and even the needs of those who were with me. And I have a constant example of how, I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. 
You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It's interesting. This is not in the gospel. So Paul heard this directly. What are the, you should remember these words of Jesus. What are they? It is more blessed to give than to receive. So I want you to do something tonight. If you've been around very long, I've used the illustration before, and I will continue to use this illustration as long as I have breath. Here it comes. I want you to imagine behind me are two doors. Two doors. Let's say this door over on this side, above it, there's a sign that says blessed. It's a good door. It's a blessed door. But over on this side, there's a second door. It's called more blessed. Now, I want you to imagine, I'm, I'm drawing this from the teaching of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I want you to remember the words of Jesus. It's more blessed to give than receive. There's two doors. You and I, whether you realize it or not, every day of our life decide to walk through those doors. Our life is about going through those doors. One door is called blessed. The other door is called more blessed. What's the first door blessed by? You see, the first door is blessed by receiving. It's the receiving door. Now, listen carefully. Don't try to be noble on this point. Listen to the teaching of Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. He didn't say it's not blessed to receive, did he? Did he say that? He didn't say that, did he? He said it is more blessed to give than to receive. I want to tell you, this first door called the door of, that is blessed is the door of receiving. I like walking through that door. Don't sit out here and act all like, well, yeah, I don't go through that door. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. You go through that door all the time. It's the door in which you receive from God, from others. You're receiving things. It's a blessed door to receive. Hallelujah. I love receiving. If you're breathing air, you're receiving. It's a blessed door. It's great. Go through there as much as you can. It's a good door. But there's another door. This is the secret. There's another door. The other door is called more blessed. And I'm going to ask you, it's in those few words, how do you get through the other door? Somebody say it out loud. Give. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Remember these words of Jesus. Now, listen, I'm acknowledging freely that I like this door over here. I like the receiving door. It's a blessed door. Have at it. But I found the other door. Some of you in the room right now, you could give a testimony. You found the other door. It's more blessed. The question is whether or not you believe Jesus. Do you believe there's another door? And the op what opens the other door is not receiving something for yourself. What opens the other door is giving something away. 
And the earlier in your life you find that door, the more blessed your life has become. You'll never find that door until you become a giver. It's not possible. And, and if you think I'm sitting here talking about money, you're still not getting it. You're still not getting it. You, 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 then, then there's a force field around you that's trying to keep the truth from coming into your own heart. Is money a part of it? Yeah, but is that the issue? No, it's not the issue. The issue is who are you and how do you see God? How do you see your role in the church? People, how do you see your role in the church? Are you autonomous? Are you independent? Or are you part of the body of Christ? If there's a need in the body of Christ, do you feel like you have some responsibility to meet that need in the body of Christ? No, I just want to take care of me. Well, you just keep going through that door. That door that receives. It's a good door. God's gracious. He's merciful. But he made another door. It's a more blessed door. Now I'm going to tell you this. Faith is the only way you'll ever find the second door. If you think you'll naturally, if you think you're going to naturally stumble through the second door, you're wrong. Somebody had to throw you through the second door. There might be people in your life that will attempt to throw you through the second door to prime the pump. You know how you go through the second door? Always the same answer. Faith. Faith takes you through the second door. Why? Because it's not natural to give. It is natural to receive. Why would I be reluctant to tell people about the more blessed door? See, that's something I had to deal with in my life. See, I told you that for years I was reluctant as a preacher to talk about giving. And then I had to apologize to God because why would I, having found that second door, be reluctant to tell somebody else about the more blessed door? So I'm telling you tonight, there's another door. And on the other side of it are blessings beyond anything you've ever experienced if all you've ever gone through is the first door called blessed. Now with that, we can move to verse 6. Somebody say amen first. Because I'm getting that look from some of y'all. Verse 6. So we have urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish the ministry of giving. In other words, can I put that in modern English? Titus, go back and get some more money. Since you excel in so many ways in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love for us, I want you to excel also in the gracious, gracious act of what? Giving. I want you to be excellent at given now if i sent a letter out to the whole church and i just said it's my desire today for the whole church to be excellent at giving how do you think that letter will be received y'all are laughing because you know people are going to think oh no here it comes well they're going to build now but that's what paul just wrote that church i want you to excel at this gracious gift of giving. Paul sent Titus to Corinth. You know what he's doing? I'm going to read it different. He sent Titus to Corinth to tell him about the second door. 
He sent Titus to Corinth to tell him about the door that was marked more blessed. The gracious gift of giving door. I can tell you it takes great faith to go through that door on a regular basis. You don't go through this second door to get more stuff. Are you hearing me? <laughs> you don't go through this door to get more stuff. In fact, typically you go through this door to get rid of stuff. That's why it's not natural. Paul said that he never coveted anyone's silver, gold, or fine clothes. Did you catch it? You go through that second door for blessings beyond the physical. Anybody want to guess what more blessed thing is behind that door? If it's not receiving, what is it? What is, what is the more blessed? If you were asked to define that which is behind the second door, what is it? It's him. It's him. Do you understand? It's him. The second door creates a heart that will know God. The second door creates a heart that will receive the will of God. People pass through the second door because they believe God. People don't go through the second door because they have to, have to or out of compulsion or pressure. They actually desire to go through the second door because they have experienced the life-giving love of God in their own lives. Let me give you an example. Not in the notes. Never thought I'd say this before tonight. When I first came here, uh, one of the guys in the church, his name was Rudy Gay. As soon as I came to the church, I figured he'd be the first problem, person I'd have a problem with. I butted heads with him the first week. I thought, went home and told my wife, I said, he's going to be a problem. That story ended different. To my dying day, I will remember one story of Rudy Gay. Rudy Gay, we, we decided we were going to take a mission trip to Christian Appalachian Project. Rudy Gay had never been on a mission trip in his whole life. Never been off the farm pretty much his whole life. And to my surprise, I put out a sign-up sheet. We were going to take people up into Appalachian, work on some houses, and Rudy Gay signed up. And he went with me, and he worked on my team. And he was an old dude, and I couldn't hardly keep up with him. He worked like a working man anyway it was toward the end of that trip and by the way it was in August and it was the hottest August I remember in my entire lifetime they put us in a dormitory at Camp Andrew Jackson with no air conditioning 
and I laid there and water ran on the floor all night long off my hot body. I was miserable. I was having second thoughts about this whole going through that second door business. <laughs> Somebody needs to find a door with air conditioning is what I'm thinking. And I don't remember where we were at standing when he said it, but he walked up to me, and here's what he said. He said, Preacher, he always called me Preacher, never would call me Terry. Preacher, I have wasted much of my life. He said, What we just did, spending one week up there, putting a porch on a widow lady's house in Appalachia on the side of a hill was the most beautiful thing I've ever done in my life. He went through the second door. He wept because, here, because of the regrets of his own life. We came back, that was in August, we had our homecoming at the end of August, that same year, Rudy Gay had a stroke, never got out of a wheelchair. The last thing he did before the stroke was he went on that mission trip. He died. Not long, well, it's probably a couple years later that he ended up dying, I believe on Christmas Day. But what I'll, the point is this. He understood that he had wasted much of his life going through this one door. Was he a believer? Yeah, he was a strong believer. But it is more blessed. There's another door. It is more blessed to give, to have a life that stops accumulating stuff. That stops. I got enough. I don't need anything else. I got enough that stops accumulating wealth and spends the rest of your life giving to somebody else. Verse 8. Paul says, I'm not commanding you to do this. But, <laughs> I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. Jesus has moved inside of our earthly temples. He has moved inside of our hearts, and His very presence is giving us the ability and the desire to love and live as Jesus did. And I'm going to tell you, listen, listen, listen. Jesus was a giver. And if Jesus has moved inside of Terry Cooper, guess what? Terry Cooper needs to be a giver. Because he's a giver. And if he's going to move inside of me, he's already taken me through the blessed door by his arrival. But he's going to take me through that second door by faith. I got enough stuff. Verse 9. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Generous. Do you see that word? He's a giver. He gives grace. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, what was his net worth when he arrived here? Huh? 
Anybody got a calculator that goes that many zeros? Though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor. So that by his poverty, by his poverty, by giving away everything he had or was, we became rich. He's a giver. Jesus is not only our example, he is our heart's desire. Here it comes. You know what's behind door number two? Jesus. He's my heart's desire. You know what's difficult about going through door number one? Door number two, excuse me, is I got too much stuff in my hands. I got too much stuff in my hands. I want you to picture a scene. It's a recent scene. I, I, was, um, I was coming into church here, and my grand, two grandsons, the two that are walking around, were running toward me, and I had stuff in both hands. And you know what they want to do when they come toward me is they're, they're wanting to run and jump, and I catch them. And by the way, Sunday, I was standing up here talking to some lady, and Case came from back here, and he was running full speed, and I was looking that way, having a very serious spiritual conversation with some woman. And Case jumped around my neck, almost took me down on top of this woman. It was ugly. But, but I stood up. He, he didn't take me out. But anyway, we're out here, and I've got something in both hands, and here comes both boys. I, 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 I don't know. I'm struggling. What am I going to do? I can't drop this stuff, and I can't catch them, and they're probably going to jump up, and it's going to be a mess. L listen, our Father wants us to take hold of him. And the biggest problem most of us have is there's too much stuff in our hands. You got to let go of some stuff. You got to give up sometimes what is good to have what is the best. We don't need more stuff. In fact, probably the best thing we're going to have if we, we need less stuff. Can you see it in what Paul writes below? This describes Jesus' followers. We are ignored even though we're well known. We live close to death, but we're still alive. We've been beaten, but we're not dead yet. We've not been killed. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we have spiritual riches. We give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing. And we have everything. Paul then starts to hand out a very practical, physical, and spiritual advice regarding giving to the church then and to the church today. Verse 10. Here is my advice. It would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. Last year, you were the first who wanted to give, and you were the first to begin doing it. Now you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. Give in proportion to what you have. Did you see that? I want you to finish what you started. This, this, this journey toward knowing God. Finish what you started. 
Give in proportion to what you have. In, what, he, he's describing what? The concept of the tithe. Give in proportion to what you have. Finish what you started. Give with eagerness, not reluctance, and give in proportion. It is the principle of the tithe. It reminds me of a, a story. There's a story about a man who comes to a preacher, and the man is struggling financially in every facet of his life. He doesn't even have enough money to feed his own family. So he comes to the preacher and says, Preacher, I need for you to pray for me. I need for you to pray that God would allow his financial blessings to come into my life. So the preacher prayed. And he told the man that when God releases his blessings in your life, when he gives you $10, I want you to believe him by turning around and giving a dollar back to God. So the guy leaves. Preacher prays, the man leaves. About a week later, the man comes back to the preacher and says, Preacher, that stuff works. I pray, you prayed, I went, I got $10 unexpectedly, and I took the $10 and I gave $1 of that back to God. Would you pray again? The preacher prayed a second time. The man walks away and leaves. Guess what happens? About a week later, the guy comes back and says, Preacher, I got $100 this time. And I did what you said. I took $10 of that $100 and I gave it back to the Lord. Preacher, would you pray again? So the preacher prayed the third time. And the man leaves and comes back in about a week and says, Preacher, 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 I got $500. And just like you said, I took that $500 and I returned $50 back to the Lord. Preacher, would you pray again? Preacher prayed and the man left. About a, two weeks went by this time. Two weeks. And finally the man comes back and he looks at the preacher and says, Preacher, 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 can you pray? He said, I got $10,000. $10,000. But you know what? 10% of $10,000 is thousand dollars and I I just couldn't give a thousand dollars back so preacher I need you to pray for me so the preacher said I'd be glad to and he bowed his head and said Lord would you take away all of his money and get it back down to a hundred dollars <laughs> and we laugh at the story but I'm gonna ask you a question at what point in your life did 10% become too much? It's a good question, isn't it? You know, it don't sound like a whole lot when it's $10. At what point in li your life was 10% greater than God? I told you some of y'all wouldn't like the name. Verse 12. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. And give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Let's stop there for a moment. Now, I found this to be a life principle. Give according to what you have, not what you don't have. So let me ask you a question. The idea of a tithe and the idea of it being a percentage base is based upon a, a mathematical calculation. 
it is 10% of what you have. It is nothing to do with what you don't have. It has no influence on what you don't have. It only affects what you do have. So let me ask you a question. What do you have in your hand? What's in your hand? What do you have? What, what do you have possession of? That's what we're talking about. It's not what you don't have. People look at giving to God and they think, well, I can't do that. Because you have this idea that you somehow God wants what you don't have. God is not interested in what you don't have. It's what you do have he's interested in. And he only wants a portion of it. But let's, let's think spiritually speaking how the world changed by a, a people giving God what they do have. I think Immediately I think of Moses. What's Moses got in his hand? A staff. It's a stick. Well, how meaningless and insignificant is a stick? But God took the staff in Moses' hand because Moses gave himself and his stick to God, and God turned that staff into the power that would, re, re, that would force Pharaoh to let two million Jews go free. Part the Red Sea. What's in your hand? That David. David, I tell my grandkids this story, and they're mesmerized because I make it dramatic as I can. David is delivering cheese to the front. He's delivering cheese. You know why he's in the story of David and Goliath? Because his daddy said, go take some cheese to the soldiers. He's not in the army. He's, taking, he's a cheese delivery boy. And he shows up at the front while the Philistine shouts down the, the God of Israel. And what's in his hand? Don't worry about what you don't have. What you do have, give it to God. What did he have? He had a smooth stone. He became the king of Israel. What's in your hand? There's a lady in the Gospels. We've talked about her in the Gospel of John. Her name is Mary. Now, she moves from a stick to a stone to a jar of perfume worth a year's pay. It's expensive. What'd she do with it? What'd she do with it? She broke it open, spilled every drop of it on his feet, washed it with her hair. That's worth more than a stick, and it's sure more valuable than a stone. But you know what? It was in her hand. She possessed that, and she gave it to God. Would you think those three names are more blessed or blessed? They're more blessed. Verse 13. Of course, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. Did you hear that? It's not about some social welfare system. I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. As the scriptures say, those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. Where did the scriptures say that? They say that in the book of Exodus. There is so much practical teaching in those four verses. Give with the heart, right heart, 
and it will be acceptable to God. God does not desire what you don't have. God doesn't need anything. Listen, he doesn't need anything I have. I checked with him this morning. He's fine. He's not running short of anything. He's got all that he needs. He has a full supply. So why does he want me to give? Is it for him or is it for me? It's for me. John Hagee says, giving is the only proof you have that the cancer of greed has not consumed your soul. I agree with John Hagee. Did you hear me? Giving is the only proof that you have that the cancer of greed has not already consumed your soul. We don't give to create our own hardship so that other people can be lazy. We should seek a balance. Let me tell you, one of the joys of the last several months in this church was this past Saturday. This past Saturday, I came out here to the Fellowship Hall and I watched 170 people pack 42,000 meals to go to Haiti. And on several occasions, I just stepped back and looked. You know, we have plenty. You know how much it was? $10,200 was the material cost of those 42,000 meals. We wrote a check. The church wrote a check for $10,200. We took up $30 a person from those and other people gave. We took back in about $5,200 of the $10,000. You see, We've got plenty. We've got more than plenty. My son-in-law's from Haiti. I've been to Haiti. I know their condition firsthand. They have needs. And some of you think, well, they got their needs because they don't work or they don't do this. Then, then you're still not getting it. That's not even yours to decide. They believe in Jesus Christ, and they're the body of Christ. And if they've got a need, guess what? The healthy part of the body must support the unhealthy part of the body. Those 42,000 meals will feed that entire school, that entire um, uh, orphanage, and that church for more than six months. And very few people in this church had to sacrifice very much at all to give that to them. That's how it works. That's how it's supposed to work. We don't, we don't give and create a hardship for ourselves so that other people can be lazy. He says don't do that. Don't create some social entitlement welfare system. That's not what we're trying to do here. But there's a need. Go meet the need. Let God take care of the details. Give now from your extra, your plenty, and one day you might need something or someone, and they'll do the same thing for you in return. Then Paul quotes Exodus chapter 16, verse 18. You know, that's what he quoted. He quoted Exodus. Let me read Exodus from, uh, for you. So the people of Israel did as they were told. Some gathered a lot, some only a little. But when they measured it out, everyone had just enough. 
Those who gathered a lot had nothing left over. Those who gathered only a little had enough. Each family had just what it needed. What are we talking about? The manna that came from heaven in the wilderness. Guess what? God worked it out where everybody had enough. Anybody hoarded it, guess what it did? It rotted. But anybody that didn't pick up enough, guess what? There was always enough. It seemed to multiply itself. I'm going to ask you the biggest question I'll ask you tonight. Would you be satisfied with just enough? Would you be satisfied with just enough? I want you to visualize God taking two million people out of Egypt. They had a very established infrastructure, established culture. Yes, they were slaves, but they were slaves in a prosperous land of plenty. They had all the food they wanted to eat. And he takes them into a wilderness where their daily survival depended on God showing up each morning. And if God didn't show up this morning, I will have nothing to eat. And if he doesn't make water come out of that rock, I will have nothing to drink. What was he doing to them? Being mean to them? What was he, what was he doing to this called out people? What was he doing to these called out ones? By the way, the church are the called out ones. What's he doing? He was trying to teach them absolute dependence upon God. Total dependence. You ever thought about the Lord's Prayer? Because I have. Give us today our daily bread. I want the daily bread and I want a safety stock of about six weeks so that I'll make sure things get tough that it'll be all right. Would you be satisfied with enough? Would you trust God tomorrow, today? Verse 16. But thank God. He has given Titus the same enthusiasm for you that I have. Titus welcomed our request that he visit you again. In fact, he himself was very eager to go and see you. We are also sending another brother with Titus. All the churches praise him as a preacher of the good news. He was appointed by the churches to accompany us in, as we take the offering to Jerusalem, a service that glorifies the Lord and shows our eagerness to help. Remember, Titus is being sent by Paul to tell the Corinth church about the second door. The door that the church in Macedonia has already found and experienced. Titus and his friend will then deliver these gifts to the suffering brothers in Jerusalem. I also want you to notice something. Listen carefully, church. This is important. Paul even brings up financial accountability in the event. Did you see it? Financial accountability. Let me read verse 20 and 21. We are traveling together to guard against any criticism for the way we're handling this generous gift. What are, what, are they, what are they doing? They're taking all the money gathered from all the churches to Jerusalem. Okay? They got a lot of money. 
We're traveling together to guard against any criticism for the way we're handling this money. We are careful to be honorable before the Lord, but we also want everyone else to see that we are honorable. In all things, we should be mindful of Satan's temptation and his power to deceive. Be careful how you handle money. Money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's to me, this is incredible that Paul writes this down. He felt such accountability to be a beyond reproach. Listen, I believe in the beyond reproach management style. Don't put yourself in a position where you can be compromised. You've heard me say over and over, I never see the offering at this church. I see the total. We designed the system where I would never see the individual gifts. I don't want to. I'm afraid it would affect my decision-making. I never do. I never have seen those. I don't see anything. I make sure I never see it. When the offering is taken up here at the church, it is taken up, goes to the back. They take it up, and it goes in a drop safe. You open the door, it just drops in there. Those people who drop it in there do not have the combination. either between the service or after the services, there is a group of people that have been personally selected. Two people are required to count the offering. They count it behind a door that is secure. They count the offering two people. Why two people? Two people have to sign off on the offering. They will have to collude together to cheat. How else can I put it? Two people will have to sign off, both of their names. Then when they make the deposit, then they'll drop it back in the safe that they do not have a combination to. That money then will be taken in a bag to the bank and dropped in the deposit box. When that deposit, and that, they'll fill out a card that lists the detail of that deposit. That card is placed on my desk. It doesn't have it just has the total. On Monday or Tuesday, I will then take that card, log into the bank account, which I can see online, and verify that that card equaled that deposit that they match. There's a system. I believe in the beyond reproach management style. Don't put yourself in a position. Is this about money? You know, how many churches have been messed up because of money? There's a church in Lexington that the preacher was stealing money. Don't put yourself in that position. Paul says we traveled together as a group to make sure that no one would be seen as less than honorable. This doesn't just apply to money. It applies to every part of our life. We have a rule in our staff that our staff does not meet with women alone. You can come in and schedule a meeting with staff in the office if there are other people in the office, but not alone. We will not go into a woman's house to meet with her under any circumstance unless there's a third party. Do not put yourself in a situation where you cannot defend yourself. It applies in all practical parts of life. Practical advice. Don't put yourself in a position of perceived or real Compromise. Satan is a crafty person. 
and he can take you down. Finally, verse 22. We are also sending with them another of our brothers who has proven himself many times and has shown on many occasions how eager he is. He is now even more enthusiastic because of his great confidence in you. If anyone asks about Titus, say that he is my partner who works with me to help you. And the brothers with him have been sent by the churches, and they bring honor to Christ. So show them your love and prove to all the churches that our boasting about you is justified. Paul is challenging them to live their faith out loud and seek a second door. Did you catch that last sentence? Make sure that when Titus comes to pick up the offering that our bragging about the giving church at Corinth is legitimate. Tonight I challenge you and I both to do the same. That the world will know that we found the second door. One last thing. The last book in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. In the book of Malachi, you'll see something. By the way, by the time you get to the book of Malachi, the Jewish people have lost everything. It's all over. It's over. It's over. It's all gone. And God, through Malachi, says, you have robbed me. And Israel's response is, how have we robbed you? And God said, in your tithes and offerings, you refused to give me what I deserved. And then he says something you won't find anywhere else in the Bible. If you find it, I have never found it. He says, test me on this, O Israel, and see if I will not open in the floodgates and pour down upon you more than you can contain. Test me. You know what? No other place in the Bible will you find God say, test me, except on the idea of giving. Try to outgive him. Go ahead. Try it. Just for a month. Try to outgive him. See if you can do it. Father, tonight in Jesus' name, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through your word you reveal who you are. Thank you, Lord, that there's a door called blessing. You gave us that door. We receive your gracious gifts from that door. But tonight, Lord, we thank you for the second door, the more blessed door. For you have also revealed to us the secret of that door is giving. And may we travel through that door much in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. Hmm?